My parents weren't the kind of parents who'd sit down and say, Nancy, how was your day? Oh, you got an A? That's amazing. And we just didn't talk about that stuff. It was really hard to feel proud of of accomplishments, I would say, because there was no room for that. You know, how could you be proud of it? Go collect more bottles. We, we need more money for rent. I come home one day and on my stoop are uh, eight big fat envelopes. It was like Harvard, Georgetown, Vassar, Tufts, Emory. I mean, all of them. And I remember being like, oh my God, I made it. I earned it. Affirmative action couldn't have done all of this for me. I must have done this for me. I think I cried on those steps for like an hour. I'm Shereen Pacek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's podcast where I take the personal route, the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story that makes them the remarkable decision makers they are in the business today. Nancy Reyes is the managing director of TBWA Shiat Day in New York. She grew up in Long Island City in Queens and the city's home turf. She grew up among rundown houses and warehouses. Her mom was a housekeeper and her father drove taxis. Her family was not the one that could provide comfortable means and resources for growing up. Nancy went to the local public school and she worked hard for everything. We were, we were pretty poor. So, uh, you know, my sister and I collected bottles on the street and from trash cans and um, helped my parents deposit them to, you know, make, make money. My sister and I worried all the time about money. It was, it was a topic of conversation at the dinner table, at the breakfast table, at the lunch table on the weekends. Money, 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 money. Uh, you know, you counted every single penny we had. We had exactly enough money to go to the grocery store. We had exactly enough money for this many meals that if we reheated them and did this and this and this to them, they would last us many more days. So we, we at a very young age, I think, were very aware of exactly how much everything cost. It was a very, very, very difficult childhood. One big thing I think I dealt with, which is probably not uncommon, is just the sort of immigrant tension and culture, that that thing that happens where you know your parents pull you back into the house and everything that has to happen in the house, right? The chores, the if you're if you're if you can walk, you can make money, you know, kind of thing. And then the whole, well, but this is America and people speak English and I gotta go to school and I gotta make friends. And so there was always that really big push and pull that happened at home. Um, and we spoke Spanish in our house. It was the only language. Um, that was that was spoken. Um, and I don't think I ever learned English until they plopped me in front of the television and I watched Sesame Street. What was it like, and especially as you sort of grew up and you learned the language and then you kind of obviously assimilated in some ways, at least into the American school experience. Um, what was it like kind of balancing your home reality with your school reality? What did, what did it feel like? So I'd gone to public school for a long time. And I think there, there were enough kids that looked like me that had a second language at Spanish. I, it, it really wasn't like there was a difference too much in school. New York City public um, schools. It was New York City public schools. Um, and everybody had an immigrant story and everybody, you know, had a financial story. So that wasn't, you know, I wasn't special in any way. I think the tensions probably got uh, the hardest when I moved to private school. In the fifth grade, there was a program called Prep for Prep. Um, that um, it's a great program. The, the mission of the program is to basically look for uh, students of color um, who are really good students. They go to public school, um, and the idea is to get them sort of caught up to what private school kids are doing, enough so that they can, um, they can attend private school free of charge. 
So for uh, two summers and a school year, basically play catch up. We learn Latin, we learn algebra, we learn all, all sorts of things in, in, that you don't learn in public school through this program, Prep or Prep. And then they place you into private schools. So when I went into a private school in Upper West Side of Manhattan, that was the first time I think that things got to be really different because no one looked like me. Everybody was, you know, super rich. They lived on Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue. And that's when stuff started to get harder at home because um, I would want to speak more English. I mean, I remember saying to my parents, this is America, goddammit. You need to speak English. Like, I, I can't I can't keep speaking to you in Spanish. It was, it was almost embarrassing to me that um, they weren't more American, that I was sort of assimilating at a faster rate than they were assimilating and I thought they were being left behind and they could give a shit, honestly. So I think that that grew, um, brought about some tensions for us. I think that made it a bit difficult. Um, and, and I think it was hard for them to understand. Did you feel more pressure too? Because then you, if you did feel like you were in this place, you were thinking, well, I, then I also want to prove something. I want to prove that I'm not just going to coast. I'm going to do great. Well, that's the big thing. I think that I always wanted to feel like I earned it. Because, you know, when I got to private school, I think there were many questions and there were sort of natural questions of like, who is this girl? Why does she look like that? How did she get here? She couldn't have possibly have gotten here on her own. And, you know, that's really crappy that kids thought that. But at the same time, they didn't get any sort of counseling or therapy that they were going to get this influx of Hispanics and African-Americans coming to their school that they'd never seen before. Do you think that would have been warranted? Do you think that was something that totally. should have been done? I think that's the big the big thing. I, I will credit Prep for Prep, this program for saving my life every single day. I mean, it, it, it really took me out of what was a, a pretty crappy childhood and helped me to get to where I am today. But I think the one thing we ignored along the way, they ignored, the private schools ignored, parents ignored, is that you can get all caught up up and all smart, all you want, but you've got to take care of the other side, which is the emotional side, the psychological side. I mean, you're basically smashing cultures together that have never seen one another before and expecting it all to work out. And it just doesn't work like that, especially during a formative time like high school, where we're all insecure, freaking out, dorking out, like all of those crazy things that are happening to us are also happening at the same time that a new society is being sort of thrust upon us. Mm -hmm. So I think in fairness to the kids, I think the adults probably failed them and me a bit. When you sort of look back on, you know, that time you were working hard, you knew that you had, you wanted to prove something, you wanted to work hard and be great. Well, what kind of was going through your mind in terms of what you wanted to do? Was there, was there a career that you were thinking of? Was there a, an end point? I think sometimes I'm sad about that when I think on it, because I'm not sure I ever really dreamed of a career. I, I just don't think that I thought about life like that back then. I think I thought about daily goals, weekly goals, monthly goals. I don't think that I ever allowed myself to think beyond like, you know, what's this week going to be like? Or, you know, are we going to have food on the table? Or, you know, how many houses is my mom going to have to clean today? And is that going to really affect her? Or, you know, did, does my dad make more money if he works in the livery cab service or a yellow cab service? I, I think those things occupied probably 75% of my brain. And then the other 25% of my brain was all around, you know, fitting in and, you know, all that other stuff that happens when you're in high school. But I'm not really sure that I fantasized about a career. I, I actually think I feel sorry for not having had that moment, you know, that sort of kid-like moment where you say, 
I want to be a president, you know, the United States, or I want to be a lawyer, or I want to be a doctor. Um, because I think it's a it's a gift that kids have, you know, that imagination that runs wild. And then the whole like, oh, wow, if I want to be president, I am really good at these things, but not really good at those things. And I'm not really sure I figured out what I was good at for a while. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, proud and thrilled and excited that I made it through that whole time. But I think I got gypped out of that little part of dreaming and imagination, I would say. Was college in the cards? College was in the cards. Um, I'm not sure that I thought about college again too far in advance, but I remember um, going to the guidance counselor and junior year in, in, in high school, and I had okay SAT scores. And um, you know, I put a list of colleges together, and I went to the guidance counselor. They were they were a really good list of schools. They were Ivies and they were little Ivies. I, my my safety school was Vassar, and um, and I remember the guidance counselor you know, said two things to me. One, she said, you know, she had, a, I think she was Southern because I just remember her saying, you know, you should think about Kalamazoo University. It's a fine, fine university. That's where you should think about going. I think they'd really like you there. Why Cal- Why did she, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. But I remember being a little bit like, I'm sure you are not telling the other kids about mm. Kalamazoo. And you there was a reason when you make a list of schools and you pick Ivies and Little Ivies. Yeah. There's a very clear reason. There's for that a clear reason. There's mm-hmm. a clear reason. And she did tell me that affirmative action would help me. So I filled out my um, my applications. And um, I think that the, you know, I often think about this moment as one of the moments that it's like, wow, this is the the beginning of the next, you know, the next chapter. So as I mentioned, I, you know, my, my parents weren't the kind of parents who'd sit down and say, Nancy, how was your day? Oh, you got an A? That's amazing. And we just didn't talk about that stuff. We talked about money and, you know, and, and many other things, but not those things at all. So uh, it was really hard to feel proud of of accomplishments, I would say, because there was no room for that. You know, how could you be proud of it? Go collect more bottles. We, we need more money for rent. So I come home one day, I mean, on my stoop are, uh, I don't know, eight big fat envelopes. And you know what that means when they're big. I knew what it meant when they were big. So I sat on my little stoop and I opened up all of them. And I just, I remember making like this huge circle around me. And it was like Harvard, Georgetown, Vassar, uh, Tufts, Emory, I mean, you know, all of them. And I just, I remember being like, oh my God, I made it. I made it. I earned it. I absolutely earned it. Affirmative action couldn't have done all of this for me. I must have done this for me. It was a super emotional moment. I think I cried on those steps for like an hour because I wanted to make sure to make space for it. Because I went inside the house, you know, and then I had to make the beef stew. I had to make the rice. I had to make the beef stew. I had to make sure not to forget the potatoes because my dad would get super pissed off. There were no potatoes. He wouldn't eat it. You know, the rice couldn't be without this salt or whatever it is. And it just, it was an hour. That was, that was all it was. It was one hour of like complete, pure pride in myself before I then went off to like make dinner, clean the bathroom, iron that damn bag of clothes that needed to be ironed and do all my homework. What was your mother's reaction? When you eventually told her? My mother just said, good job. But I think as probably as calmly as I just said it to you, um, I don't know what it would have taken to get them to be like, oh my God, that's amazing. But you know, that, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. So people talk a lot about work ethic. And I think that people talk a lot about work ethic, especially when it comes to the immigrant story. It's like, 
you can't just be a regular immigrant. You have to be an immigrant with work ethic or you have to be an immigrant who cured cancer. You have to be an immigrant who there's no room for, you know, regular old immigrant who just yeah. goes to work and comes home and <laughs> lies on the couch watching some Netflix. <laughs> you clearly had work ethic. I yeah. mean, there's no doubt about that. You got into all these great schools. What did all that look like when you got into or started going to this incredibly competitive school with lots of other people there? I mean, this was everybody who there were lots more people who were like you. There were also lots more people who were legacy, who were sort of had always known they were going to Harvard and then go getting out of Harvard and saying, okay, what am I going to do next? I think that I actually found college to be the most freeing, amazing experience of my life. And the the biggest reason why I felt that is because there were people who looked like me everywhere and it was a level playing field. So everybody ate at the school cafeteria. So I didn't have to worry about where food was going to come from or what I was going to eat today. And I didn't have to be embarrassed about where I ate or what I ate because everybody ate the same thing. So it was like, we all eat lunch at the cafeteria. And then by the grace of God and some good fortune, we all get gifted a computer. I mean, I realize we didn't get gifted it. I'm still probably paying for some of it, right? But we, we all pay we for all, it later. Right? We all pay for it later. But the idea that we all have, and it's the same computer. So you don't get a better computer than I get. We all get pretty much the same computer. We all live on campus in the same sort of shitty dorm room, but we all, so it was the most level playing field on the planet. And I think once I got a level playing field, then I felt the like, okay, then I can do this. We're all the same. For a second, we are all the same. Now, definitely I had moments of, you know, wow, I'm, I'm in a place where people are just extremely privileged. I had a, I got punched for, um, the hasty pudding club. And I had friends, you know, who belonged to the hasty pudding club and they're like, you should join. I'm like, Oh my God, no one would have ever asked me to do this. I, I, this is amazing. And, um, I went in, I filled out an application and you know, it, it sort of got to the part of like, what's your mom's occupation? What's your father's occupation? Where do you live? And I remember just leaving it half filled out and said, fuck it. They're not going to get me in here anyway. What's the point? So there were definitely moments where I was reminded of, of that, but I think there were so many other avenues to just let it out and to have space and to do my thing. And I got to be, you know, I was really good at enough things and I had, you know, great friends. And again, everything was so level and even that I just, I felt more myself because I felt like I could do my, I, I didn't have to work as hard. Now, all of that is with the big caveat of like, yes, I worked my butt off. It was really hard. It was really intense. Um, I would wake up really early in the morning to do my work. That was, that was sort of my way of, of dealing with it. But I, I, I don't think I felt the amount of insecurity that I felt in middle school and in high mm-hmm. school. Did you think about a career at that point? When did you sort of first start thinking, okay, I'm going to get out of here in four years? What, what comes after that? I think so, not until senior year. I, I really had a hard time finding the right track to go to. So I eventually applied to a consulting job um, in some local Boston uh, company. And then uh, Prep for Prep actually reached out after I had accepted the job and thought I was going to stay in Boston. And they reached out to say that uh, Ogilvy and Mather was looking to diversify uh, their employee base. And, you know, can I come out and meet them? 
So I said, I had to have a job, but okay, you know, I'll, I'll pop over there. And I, you know, I, I got picked up by a car service at the airport. You know, they, they paid for my flight. I got picked up by a car service. I got dropped off at, you know, at the, at the beautiful lobby with the big red carpet. And I met, I don't know, 10 or 11 people sort of in a row. And, uh, I decided that I wanted, I wanted to do, I wanted to do that job. I wanted to be in advertising. Were you sort of thinking, this is it? I'm in advertising. I love advertising. But there's so many different parts to it. And you were sort of there at a different time than today. I think that, uh, I don't know that I ever said I'm in advertising until now, probably, or when I got to Goodby. I love it. I want to stay in it. I kept saying, if I can imagine doing my boss's job, I'll go at it one more year. That was sort of my philosophy for a while. When I got to uh, Ogilvy, um, there was the guy who was sort of running the program is, uh, his name was Christian Carino, um, who's now Lady Gaga's boyfriend, which I think is just fascinating. So his name was Christian Carino and he put us all into a room and he basically said, okay, so this is how it works. And he explained what the different departments of advertising are. He said, you can be a writer, you can be an art director, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, we all went around the room cause he said, okay, well, what do you want to be? And I said, I said to him, well, I wrote for the paper at school. So I want to be a writer. And he said, great, you'll be in account management. (laughs) And that's how Nancy got her first break into advertising. After a short break, Nancy revisits the experience of shutting down Goodby Silverstein and partners in New York. But right now I want to tell you all about Digiday Plus, which is our premium membership product. Join our community and get a firsthand look at how digital is transforming the world of media. You'll get exclusive research, invitations to lots of exclusive member-only events, and of course, Digiday Magazine. And it's only $3.95 a year. You can sign up at digiday.com. And we have a discount offer for you, our podcast listeners. If you want 25% off your subscription, enter the code starting out at checkout. Now back to the episode. With Ogilvy and Mather, Nancy set out on an illustrious career path. Following a move to San Francisco, she ended up taking a job with Goodby Silverstein and Partners. But if a career in advertising is something Nancy never imagined even retiring from, Goodby took that question and put it to rest. She knew she could stay there forever. I had dreamed that I was going to retire at Goodby Silverstein and Partners. It was like, if this is advertising, I'm in forever. This place is amazing. These people are amazing. This is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. So I think I think it had sort of been the first time that I had dreamed my way through maybe 60 years old. Um, what was it like moving back to New York after? I think it was a shock to the system. Um, I think that was, San Francisco was good to me for so many reasons, mainly taking the edge off, you know, and sort of sharpening up. The, sort of mellowed out. Mellowed out, a little nicer. Um, the biggest shock I had coming back to New York was that whenever we got a pitch that we had, um, we were we were too busy to take on at Goodby. We would always say, I'm so sorry, we can't take this on, but you should check out our partners at Venables or our partners at Butler Shine. We would always refer people to somebody else in in San Francisco in San Francisco mm-hmm. in New York hell no you know it was like but even though it was good be even though it was good be it was it was a different I don't think that the culture of good be carried through in New York I think in New York we had to do things in a New York way but always trying to honor the way good be Silverstein and partners did stuff was it hard watching good be kind of in New York fizzle out Oh my God, I think it was the most devastating part of my life. Did you sort of see, I mean, I think we talk a lot about, you know, failures on the show or just watching something that you love not work out or being part of, whether it's a dot-com bust or something like that. But 
walk me through that time. Kind of, did you sort of see the writing on the wall? Did you think this something's something's going to happen? This just isn't clicking. Yeah, I think that the the thing about Goodby New York was that it, creatively we were doing amazing. I mean, we had we won the New York Post, we won Street Easy, we had done an amazing um, commercial and program for Comcast. We we were killing it by all accounts. Creatively, we were killing it, but that was sort of outside of the financial obligation that we had, you know, to the agency. And I think that the, I think that it was clear that we were not going to be able to do both and that we didn't want to compromise the creative part, you know, in, in New York. It was going to just take us some time to get ourselves sorted to make the money. It was really, it was, it was, what was hard about it was, I, I think that I had a really rough time thinking about where the money was going to come from every day. And I didn't, I don't like the way that feels. Um, and I think I, I don't like the way it feels because it, it's too reminiscent of, of growing up. It's too reminiscent of like every single day we have to worry about where the money comes from and where the penny is going to come from. And can I borrow from that to pay for that? If that, if I get that client and they, they give me this much money that will pay for this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And it's not that we shouldn't think about those things. Of course we have to, but, um, it, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to work. You know, it was too, it, 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 we, we were dependent on at the time. Um, there was a big merger that was going to happen between Time Warner and, and Comcast. And when that didn't happen, which was going to be the sort of promised big revenue and project to the agency, there just wasn't a way to make those calculations work where everybody was going to be happy. It just, it wasn't, we were going to all be miserable. It was, it sort of just collapsed around me. Tell me about today. What kind of, what kind of manager are you? What kind of boss are you? What kind of leader do you want to be? There's a couple people who say that I am uh, tough but fair. I think I probably get that uh, quite a bit. I think that the leader that I want to be is um, somebody who makes uh, intelligent, informed decisions in a way that leads the rest of the agency forward. Um, and I think the decision-making thing is difficult, I mean, because there's a lot of factors, right? There's always people factors, money factors, process factors. I think that makes it, you know, can be really challenging. I think I have always valued, I know, in leaders, honesty, transparency, directness. I, I, I tend to be very direct with people um, and very, very honest. Ever too direct? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I think I just always operate on the, I'd rather give it to you straight than beat around the bush. Um, I'd rather, you know, exactly how I feel and where I stand on stuff. I think people would probably say they know how I feel about them or they know how I feel about a project, um, or something that we're doing or not doing at the agency. So I think I can be pretty transparent like that. I think I'm, I'm also, I'm still big on earning it. You know, I think I will forever be uh, whether I'm a leader or, you know, or not a leader, just, just devoted to the idea of earning it. You know, have I earned my paycheck today? Have I earned, uh, the title that I have, you know, have I earned the position in the agency? Has this agency earned its place? Is it, has it earned its recognition? Um, have we earned this client's trust? I just think when you earn something, it is the best feeling that you can have. And once you feel that, you can pretty much argue any point in your favor. Do you tell people, you know, younger people, people starting out that? Do you feel like that's something people should be told more often? I do. I do. I think that the, you know, I think people sometimes too quickly dismiss it as a, an immigrant thing, as you mentioned, like, of course you feel that because you had to earn you have every, to like, owe something, you owe something. I think that is the, 
the hardest thing I've probably ever had to deal with just, and I probably still deal with it every day is the idea that I owe this country something that I owe that the private schools that let me in something or Harvard something. Do I owe uh, any of the agencies who've employed me something? And I think it took me a minute to get to the place of, you know, I don't, I don't know anyone, anything except all of my effort. That's Nancy Reyes, and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe and share. Rate us and leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. We're also on anchor.fm. I'm Shreen Patek. We'll see you next week.